you know, the way into paradox and, and the way the way to begin is really to start with the kinds of challenges, tensions, tug of wars, trade-offs, issues that we all face in our in our own lives. I mean, we face tensions, trade-offs, tug of wars on an ongoing basis. Hello, and welcome to the Creative Solutions Podcast. I'm your host, Isolde Trachtenberg. Whether you're writing the first sentence of a story or solving the climate crisis, you need to think in new ways. On the show, I interview peak performers who are coming up with those creative solutions. Through creativity, action, inspiration, and innovation, they're changing the world. I also bring you ideas and techniques that you can use to unlock your potential to do the same. And now, let's get to the show. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Innovative Mindset Podcast. I'm your host, Isolde Trachtenberg. Super, super thankful that you have taken the time to be here today. And I'm also really excited to talk to this week's guest, and you're going to know why in just a second. Wendy K. Smith is, and I, I should say, Wendy K. Smith is a professor, first of all, but let me, let me, Keep going. Wendy K. Smith is the Dana J. Johnson Professor of Management and Faculty Director of the Women's Leadership Initiative at the Lerner College of Business and Economics at the University of Delaware. She earned her PhD in organizational behavior at Harvard Business School, where she began her intensive research on strategic paradoxes. We're going to talk a lot about that. How leaders and senior teams effectively respond to contradictory yet interdependent demands, not independent, but interdependent, very important distinction. Working with executives and scholars globally, she received the Web of Science Highly Cited Research Award for 2019, 2020, and 2021 for being among the 1% most cited researchers in her field and received the Decade Award in 2021 from the Academy of Management Review for the most cited paper in the past 10 years. Wow. Her work has been published in such journals as Academy of Management Journal, Administrative Science Quarterly, Harvard Business Review, Organization Science, and Management Science. She's taught at the University of Delaware, one of my favorite places, Harvard University, and the University of Pennsylvania Wharton, while helping senior leaders and middle managers all over the world address issues of interpersonal dynamics, team performance, organizational change, and of course, Innovation, my catnip. Wendy lives in Philadelphia with her husband, three children, and the family dog. Wendy, thank you so much for being here. Welcome. Thank you so much. Wow. Okay, so first of all, most of what I just talked about is catnip to me. I love the way groups work together. I love creativity and innovation and ingenuity, and I think about it pretty much all the time. But something that's very new to me in what you are doing is paradox. So I want to, if you wouldn't mind, give me a definition before we go into who you are and where you've been, just give me a, a, a definition of what a paradox is. Isolde, it's so great to be in this conversation with you. I am excited by the synergies between both of our work. So thank you for having me. My pleasure. We define paradox as persistent, interdependent contradictions. Persistent, interdependent contradictions. So those are three big words, and I'm happy to break it down. Uh, for those people that are uh, more visual learners, you could think about the yin-yang. For those people that are not, the, imagine this idea of inter, two competing ideas, things that feel like they're a real trade-off, they're real opposition. So it could be 
focusing on today and focusing on tomorrow, focusing on my own needs and myself and focusing on the other, uh, trying to accommodate something that's both stable and in place and changing and dynamic. These things really are oppositional. And yet, as you said in the introduction, they're also interdependent. They define, they reinforce, they enable each other. They're synergistic. And so, for example, we know that the more effectively we can uh, attend to our own needs, the more that we are energized and resourceful to help and benefit others, the more that we reach out and support others, the more that we create the conditions where we can be better and offer more to ourselves. So they are interdependence. Uh, in fact, there's this Ubuntu idea, I am only me through who I am in relationship to you. So they're interdependent and these things are persistent. They don't go away. We cannot solve them. We have to learn to live with them. And hopefully we could either live with them if they stand in our way, or we could live with them and find ways that they can energize us and lead to better outcomes. And so hopefully we can do the second. They lead to better outcomes rather than they stand in our way. I, I'm sorry. I'm taking a second. Some people call it dead air. I call it anticipatory air because I want to take in what you just said. There's so much in what you just said, and I thank you for that. I I really love that you're talking about interdependence and, and you mentioned the yin-yang. And the thing about the yin-yang to me when I think about it is that even at the most sort of the extreme of one side, there's still a little bit of the other side present, right? There's still that little circle in the white, the most white part of a yin-yang, there's still that little black circle. In the most black of the yin-yang, there's still a little white circle. And it always comes to me as a moving thing, right? So it's not a static thing that's happening. And when you're talking about these interde interdependent processes, interdependent ideas, are they always in motion? Is it a more, uh, again, kinetic thing? Or is it more static when you're looking at it from the perspective of organizations and teams? I love it. We're getting really philosophical really quickly, which is a place that I love to be. Uh, <laughs> so I'm happy to go there and then to come back and ground it into the pragmatic world that we live in. And we would say that these things are incredibly dynamic. In fact, the features of paradox is that there is duality, these opposite black and white slivers, and that there is dynamism, that these things are always in motion. Mm -hmm. You know, again, if you want to go to the images, we see that motion happening just even in the wave between the two opposite sides. It's not a straight line between them. One side becomes bigger uh, in relation to the other becoming smaller and vice versa. And sometimes uh, just in as far as an image goes, symbolically, you can turn to the idea of the Mobius strip mm. uh, as a better way to demonstrate that dynamism. And so if you ever follow the Mobius strip, the classic image that is the key to any Escher painting, you know, you sort of follow one side of a Mobius strip and you're on the inside of the strip. And the next thing you know, as you're following it, you're on the outside. And the next thing you know, you're on the inside and you're constantly shifting back and forth between inside and outside without ever leaving, without ever having to take your finger off that strip. It's like the Escher painting, you're the classic painting of the waterfall. You're going up the waterfall and the next thing you know, you're following it around and you're going down and you're going up and you're going down. It's in constant motion between these opposing ideas. And that dynamism is actually really important. And we can talk about this. It's important in how we think about managing paradox as well. 
I feel like I should just go and mic drop. That was great. Okay. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, it, to me, it makes perfect sense that it's dynamic, but you didn't, you didn't come to this one morning, did you? You didn't wake up and go, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to work on interdependent paradoxes. It's going to be really cool. <laughs> so grounding it a little bit, because I do want to get back to the philosophy of it and the mindset of it, but but how did you get to the place where you went, this is my life's work. This is what I want to focus on, specifically helping people navigate and negotiate some of these potentially almost hazardous seeming paradoxes in their lives. Yeah, and I think that's such a great way to put it because paradoxes can enable and they can also halt and prevent us. So they can be hazardous or they can be enabling. And so our goal, and maybe we can get here by the end of the episode together, is to help people see paradoxes and see their enabling benefit. Uh, and uh, indeed, I didn't just stumble upon this one morning. And in part, I arrived at paradox through my own stuckness through, hmm. through my own challenges and you know the way into paradox and, and the way the way to begin is really to start with the kinds of challenges tensions tug of wars trade-offs issues that we all face in our in our own lives i mean we face tensions trade-offs tug of wars on an ongoing basis mm -hmm. and that could be you know in, in my life for example uh you know, I was really stuck in what did I want to do in my life? What did I want to mm. be in my life? When I was in college, uh, what I knew is that I wanted a world in which I could have impact, but I didn't know what that looked like. And I really wanted to answer that question and be certain about it. So for a while, I thought, well, what that must be is that the most direct impact you could have is as a medical doctor. And so, and I had a friend whose father was a, was an orthopedic surgeon, and he brought me into the OR and was helping me to think about what it meant to find a path of medicine. The thing about medicine was at least in my sphere, the people I knew who were going to med school were very clear about their path. I, on the other hand, was very unclear. And so mm. in my world, I, you know, I loved academics, but I was really the kid on campus who was the student leader involved in clubs, leading clubs. I came out of a leadership uh, world in, um, in high school. I was a youth leader in a youth group. And the, and, and the idea of leadership as a life uh, career seemed very amorphous to me. Mm -hmm. and, and I say this with a huge amount of irony. It, it seemed very, uh, it did not seem as impactful, uh, certainly compared to medicine. And the reason I say that with irony is because what I do now is I teach leadership because I think it's hugely impactful, mm -hmm. uh, but I couldn't see a path forward. And so here I was stuck in just my own career decisions. What am I going to be when I grow up? And so stuck that, you know, I felt this tremendous amount of angst about it. I felt the uncertainty bearing down on me. It led to a lot of fear that I wouldn't be anything because I couldn't figure it out. The amount of emotional uh, intensity about it, or I'll just say it, I, the, I felt emotionally intense about it to a point that it left me stuck. And you know, and to the point that I ended up graduating from college and taking two years and living abroad because I just didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm. And, uh, you know, if I were to look back at my career decisions, I think the experimentation that I did, I, I took chemistry, I took biology, I decided that wasn't the path I was going to go down. I worked in DC as a lobbyist. I uh, I got a job as a consultant. I decided I wasn't going to do that. And I went and lived abroad. 
like I don't I, I look back at all of that and think that all of that experimentation was really valuable. And what was really problematic was the deep level of emotional angst that I felt and that this was not okay, as opposed to this was sort of my path opening up and unfolding over time. And this continued. I went I, I, I went abroad. I came back. Uh, I then debated, do I go to grad school to get a PhD and become an academic or do I go out in the world and be what academics call practitioners, actually doing work rather than studying work, doing things rather than studying things. And I felt a lot of angst about that. And, and so they say that research is me-search. Partially, I fell into this notion of interdependent opposites because I was living in the world of making my tensions into either ors where I felt so much pressure to choose between them that I couldn't see the ways in which these opposing possibilities could reinforce each other and which I could bring them together into a life that was more holistic and made sense for me. And, um, and so that is partially in my own life what triggered this. And I'll just, I'll say one more thing, which is what ended up triggering this for me academically was that uh, when I went to grad school, I was studying with an amazing advisor who was exploring how top management teams at, well, how organizations and their top management teams innovated. So to this innovation mindset. Uh, and the issue with innovation in big organizations is that large organizations often are the worst innovators because they're so stuck in inertia. Mm -hmm. So how could organizations navigate to innovate? And he, uh, this was Mike Tushman at Harvard Business School, talked a lot about the importance of being ambidextrous or navigating both a new experimental world while simultaneously managing the existing world. And I was studying the top management teams at IBM, the strategic business units, while they were navigating this tension between today and tomorrow, stability and change, innovation and the existing product. And this idea of living in paradox kept coming up. I, I was exposed to this great book by Kenwin Smith and uh, David Berg, Paradoxes of Group Life. And I just saw these tensions as paradoxes as they, they, they need to move from choosing between today and tomorrow, thinking about this as a trade-off to living in and uh, accepting what it meant to live in a world of today and tomorrow at the same time. And uh, it was that that intellectually started me to think, started me thinking, how can this idea of paradox, this 2,500 year old idea of paradox help inform how leaders navigate innovation for today and how we can manage that tension? And that's partially how I got into it. I then found Marianne and the two of us have been doing research on this ever since. Wow. <laughs> that is fantastic. And I love that you tasted so many different facets of who you could be and what you could do. And then, like I tell my clients, you took the best and you lost the rest, right? You, you actually let all of that inform, it sounds like, who you are today and what you do today. And I think that's amazing. And it's interesting to me that you're talking about paradox being a 2,500 year old uh, idea. What's interesting about that to me is we haven't really evolved that much over the last 100,000 years. We've, we 
for the most part have been kind of the same. And yet there have been these minute changes where you can start seeing that we're thinking differently, but some of these basic principles remain. And something you said earlier that I would like to touch back on is you were talking about taking care of yourself being simultaneous with taking care of others in that if you're not taking care of yourself, you're not going to be any good to anybody else. And it reminds me of that thing that's, you know, flight attendants say, put your own mask on before reaching out to help someone else. So when you're looking at that from the perspective of these companies that you've studied and and the leadership teams that you're working with, how do you help these teams, these leaders realize that it's okay to work in a paradox and that it's not as dangerous or hazardous as they might think it might be. Yeah, I think the first step here is to name the tensions and normalize them. Mm -hmm. So top management teams of businesses are constantly facing strategic tensions. I was talking about how I went into this thinking about the innovation tension. The other one that I was spending a lot of time thinking about and and we had mentioned this briefly to one another in advance is the sustainability or the social responsibility tension. Um, I was really intrigued about how business leaders navigate this tension between financial performance and social good, social mission, broader thinking about the planet and about people and community. And when I first started grad school, because collectively, we had more of an either or mindset that it was a trade off, people would say, look, you've got to pick one or the other. And in fact, our political or our our, um, legal systems reinforce that are you a for profit? Or are you a nonprofit? Well, over the last 20 years, we have reminded ourselves that if we are a for profit that has overemphasized finance at the expense of also thinking about social mission, uh, broader, ethical, social, environmental concerns, we end up in problems, you know, we end up with something like Enron, or WorldCom, Mm. or these companies that imploded because their extreme emphasis on the bottom line led them to a whole bunch of behaviors that were in the short term, incredibly financially beneficial, and in the long term, incredibly detrimental. And, you know, in some ways, I say Enron is the best example for a business school professor who teaches leadership and ethics, of why not to go down that road, why either or thinking is so problematic. Because in the short term, either or thinking, am I I financially driven and have to focus on the bottom line, or am I focused on a broader social, ethical, environmental agenda, sounds good, is easy to make decisions. In the long term, it's really problematic. So, So in terms of how we think about this, the first thing to do is to normalize that these kinds of competing demands are the norm. They are the mother's milk. They are the, they are just the standard of how our organizations run. They are, we, we on an ongoing basis face 10 and and how our lives run. We on an ongoing basis face competing demands between self and other social financial today, tomorrow, collaboration, competition, stability, change. We can go on and on. So if that's the norm, then the question is, what do we do with them? How can we face them better? And and so, but the first thing we have to recognize is that it's not uh, whether we face tensions, whether we face competing demands, it's how, how do we Mm. do it? And, you know, I think what's important here is not to say that interdependence wins the day over 
over competition, these things, meaning that, you know, these things really do compete in the short term for our resources, for, you know, our time, our money, our, our focus, they compete in the short term for how, how we're going to behave. And we can also see their interdependence, we can switch. So, so number one, tensions exist. Number two, let's understand that underneath each of our dilemmas are these paradoxical relationships and start digging into not just the competitive nature of them, but also the interdependent nature. And that can help us. And, and by doing that, I'll say one more thing. Let's shift the questions that we ask uh, from asking a question that says, should I focus on my financial outcomes as a for-profit or the social environmental missions to how can I as an organization achieve social finance, social environmental mission through my profit orientation? How can I accommodate both of these? Changing that question opens up a whole new possibility space. This is the Innovative Mindset Podcast, so I have to ask it from this perspective, Wendy, because I appreciate everything you've said, and that last question makes a lot of sense. How can I do both? What do you think needs to happen in the mind, in the perspective or awareness of the leader of teams in a company to allow them to do that? What kinds of thinking differences, what kinds of uh, awareness ideas do they need to explore and embrace in order to be able to actually do that, particularly if they are sitting in a traditionally hierarchical company trying to lead it? Yeah, so I'll say two things here. First, I do think that the mindset, and I, I think an innovative mindset, we can kind of unpack what that is, it is also aligned with this paradoxical mindset. So we've done a whole bunch of research on what does a paradox mindset mean? How do we reframe these approaches to our tensions? And the reframing, we like to, by the way, quote Paul Watts, the psychologist who said, the problem is not the problem. The problem is how we think about the problem. For sure. And so the reframing is, can you see the competing demands, the, the tensions that exist? Do you experience them? And can you shift your mindset from seeing something as a trade-off? Either I'm going to focus on today's product and double down on that, or I'm going to shift to tomorrow. You know, at any time we, and, and can you change that to a both and? So I was going to say, anytime I hear this either or, I often have this, Kind of professional hazard gut reaction, but what's the both and? What's the both and here? And in fact, I'll just tell you, I have uh, I have three kids, and my first kids are twins, and there was a lot of either oring in who got what and who did what, and my kids now almost roll their eyes because they know that as soon as they get into no me, no me, it's like okay, folks, what's the both and here? That's where my kids will roll their eyes. Um, <laughs> but it is a bit of professional hazard when when we hear that either. Or a couple of years ago, my colleagues at the university before the pandemic were having this conversation about moving into online teaching. And it really felt at that time that online teaching was going to take over the world and we were going to lose in-person teaching. 
And so we were stuck in the either or. Are we going to be an online MBA program or are we going to be an in-person MBA program? And it felt like the online was going to uh, cannibalize the in-person and it wasn't going to be the high quality that we wanted it to be. It was a lot of either oring. When in fact, as we've seen now, especially after the pandemic, online has only enhanced the need for in-person and created possibilities for in-person. And in they haven't cannibalized each other. They've expanded each other. But that either or is our first gut reaction. So I do think that there is a mindset shift, which is to say, how can I notice how I'm looking at a at a challenge as a trade-off, as one or the other, as an either or, and how can I shift that? The other thing that I just want to put out there, and we can also explore some of this, is that you know one of the things that we find in our research, and certainly that we talk about in the book, is how important it's not it's important to not only be aware of and shift our mindset, it's also important to think about our emotions and our emotional experience because navigating this stuff, these kinds of tensions feels really emotional. And we have to recognize, leaders have to recognize that uh, tug because it feels like a tug of war. Just as I was saying in my own personal decision, certainly if you're in any organization where they're navigating a strategic plan, you can just feel the angst and the angst leading to people's personal or professional focus and, and goals or the angst leading to the uncertainty that's about to happen because we're just not sure which way to go. There, there's emotional angst in that tug of war. You feel it. And part of being able to navigate paradox, and we talk about it as you know, finding comfort in the discomfort, knowing that it's sure. uncomfortable accepting that it's uncomfortable, not burying the discomfort, but not letting that discomfort define how we think and behave going forward, accepting it to enable us to be able to move forward amidst that discomfort. So there's an emotional component as well. I agree wholeheartedly. And it's interesting to me to, to hear you and go, uh, there are yoga principles, yoga principles at work here, right? There, there's to me, yoga is balance. It's the combination of balance, strength, and flexibility. And balance comes when you accept that sometimes you're going to get a little in, uh, out of balance, and then you make up for that, if you will. The strength is there, I think, in in the mission, in the vision that these folks have, and the flexibility is maneuverability, right? So they, they it isn't just one way forward. And like you mentioned earlier, it's very dynamic. So when we are moving in these places, when we're looking at them from that perspective, and you're talking about both and, there is a, um, it, it, you know, we, we want to think of it as, as either or, as you said, because it's the reaction. But it feels almost like, well, just thin the broth if you need to, right? There's possibility for more than that. And when, when you're in the process of that, when, you're, when you were writing the book, when you're doing this research, there seems to me to be a need for a self-awareness piece of this, like you said, emotionally, but also kind of being deserving. And I, I'm not sure if, if the psychology of this will track for you, but to me, it feels like you need to feel like you deserve to be able to look at both, that it that it's not a, a lack of things or of ideas, that, it, that there's a finite amount. When you reach people who are in that reactionary space, how 
do they I won't I won't say snap out of it. I I will I will say how do they grow through it in order to embrace both and thinking so that they can look at it from that multi-layered, multi-leveled perspective. I love the yoga analogy. And one thing we, we like also the analogy of meditation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because if you think about meditation and the goal to feel more zen, more grounded. Uh, more connected to the world. This is a lifelong practice. And yet, if you talk to anybody about meditation, they will say the first step is focusing on your breath. We think the same is true of navigating paradox, that spotting all of the emotional, psychoanalytical, cognitive training that we've had that's led us to either or. And we have a lot of cognitive training that leads us to either or. We're told at a very young age to make decisions. Are you going to have the green M&M or the yellow M&M? Are you going to have, <laughs> you know, and, and we're not given the, are you going to have the green M&M, the yellow M&M, or are you going to have half of each? Or are you going to think about an alternative? You know, think alternative. We're just told, choose between the green and the yellow and let's move on. Um, and that might be fine for the green or the yellow M&M, but it's not as fine for trying to think about your organization's strategy of whether your strategy is going to focus on uh, diversity or it's going to focus on excellence as opposed to saying, how can we achieve excellence through diversity, right? And so so I do think there's a lot of training that leads us to either or. And the first step that we would say is, is indeed what I was what I was suggesting, change the question so that we start shifting our overall focus from reducing between alternatives, trying to make a decision, pros and cons, make a choice, move on to how can we see our competing demands in the context of a broader holistic possibility where over time we're accommodating both. So so just so so we would say start with changing the question. Now that some people can just pause there and get into that and that unto itself is enough. And some people can go on to the next piece, which is, okay, now that you've changed the question, what next? I feel like I just want to keep saying, I love what you're saying. I love what you're saying. I love what you're saying because <laughs> I do. And, and and the reframing of it, I think is so important, but there's, there's more to it than that for me. And thank you for bringing up meditation because that was going to be my next question that, that being present is important. But what you just said really struck something in me. You're, you're from, correct me if I'm wrong, you're saying, okay, let's reframe the question to how can we do both? But inevitably you're going to find people, let's say, on your board of directors, I know we're talking about companies and organizations, but let's let's just say that that's what this is. It could also be a singing group, right? A singing group trying to decide whether or not they should sing Handel's Messiah or whether or not they should sing Durfle's Zubi Caritas. The same kind of thing might happen where one faction might really want to be either or, that we have to do one or the other, or Handel's Messiah or Ubi Caritas, and another faction that might go, no, 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 why don't we do just the Alleluia Chorus and the Ubi Caritas instead of having to do both, right? We can do that. And yet it takes an open-mindedness in order to be able to do that. So how how do you do that with people where there are factions within the, the larger group that are really married to either or thinking or their particular point of view. Yeah, so I wanna say um, two or three things here. So you can pause me at any point. Mm. 
the, I will the first, never pause you, just so you know. <laughs> the the first piece is to think about what either what both and thinking looks like as an alternative to either or. So either or thinking looks like, um, and you know, I might not get <laughs> the right names down in the in the singing groups, but I'll give you an example because one that we can often people often experience is, is work life tension, right? So. Mm-hmm. Uh, at an individual level, do I spend another hour staying at work and finishing my project or do I come home for dinner with my family? Like there, you have to make a decision there, right? There is a decision and a trade-off to be made there. Either or thinking looks like, okay, I'm going to evaluate that and then make that decision, but I'm going to feel that ongoing sense of suckness or or tension (laughs) because I haven't figured out the right balance of work and life. Okay. So both and thinking in contrast looks like two things. And I think it's important to unpack both of them. The first is maybe there is this perfect integrative possibility where the two demands of your life come together in this perfectly beautiful way. And, and, and this is the way that I think most people think is the perfect both and, and that's what they think of. So it's like the ideal win-win synergy. We call it the creative integration. The metaphor, if you will, that we use here is the mule because the mule is this biological hybrid that is you know, smarter than a donkey, stronger than a horse and able to do all kinds of great things. And, uh, you know, and, and this would be an example. So there is a, a book by Albert Rothenberg uh, called The Emerging Goddess. And his argument is that if you look at geniuses like Einstein, like Mozart, like Picasso, I like to throw in, he looked at Virginia Woolf as a novelist. At, if you look at creative geniuses, their genius brilliance came as a creative integration by juxtaposing opposing ideas against one another to generate something novel and brilliant. So, you know, for example, Einstein, uh, his theory of relativity came as the juxtaposition of how could an object be both at rest and in motion at the same time? Relativity helps explain that. So it's this novel theory that truly brings together these opposing demands. And that creative integration is what we tend to think of as the perfect both and. And uh, I was saying, you know, that doesn't happen all that often. I was saying Mm -hmm. earlier that one of my first studies was uh, studying IBM and their top management teams as they navigated this tension between innovation and existing product. And I was expecting there to be, you know, we're going to hold these in tension with one another and find these brilliant integrative win-wins where our existing product and all of its uh, all of its technology or its uh, customers or its assets, we're going to enable and support the innovation. It's going to be this brilliant possible both and, and that happened very rarely. And instead what they did, I called it at the time, dynamic decision-making. We talk about it as being consistently inconsistent, or we, we use the metaphor of a tightrope walker. Mm. And what we mean by that, and, and this goes back to this idea of being dynamic over time, What we mean by that is that oftentimes what ends up happening in both anding is that we take a longer term perspective and we are constantly shifting between alternative demands so that even though we're making a decision about our specific dilemma in the moment, am I going to be at work or am I going to be at home tonight? Over time, we are shifting in these sort of micro shifts between tonight I'm at home, tomorrow night I'm at work and I'm accommodating both of these demands over time by making these micro shifts. And the image, if you will, of the tightrope walker is that 
in order to go forward. The tightrope walker isn't stuck if they're not in one place and they're not balanced. They're not, they're not in one, they're not always stable. What they're doing is that they are constantly balancing on the wire, Mm -hmm. shifting in these microwaves right and left in order to move forward. Now they're not over focused, you know, over shifting to the right or the left or else they fall off, but it's these micro shifts and what that looks like in our lives and what that might look like in the singing group is sometimes we choose what one group does. And sometimes we choose what the other group does. And over time, we are accommodating the different needs, perspectives, values, goals, uh, uh, preferences of these different groups, because we find that overall doing so allows us to be a better singing group overall, or overall allows me to be a better uh, person when I can make these micro shifts between career and the rest of my life, work and the rest of my life. And so I think that importantly, one of the things that that helps people to sort of see the value of both anding is noticing the moments in time where you can accommodate competing ideas over time is really valuable or said differently, actually, what happens if you overemphasize over time, that is you're falling too far to the right or too far to the left on the wire that you fall off. And again, Enron is a great example in the social responsibility space. We certainly see this in the innovation space of what happens when companies overemphasize their existing product and can't innovate and get stuck in inertia. We see this in the work life space where we overemphasize work to the point that we burn out and life, you know, we can no longer even accommodate our lives. So sometimes it's seeing how far we have to go uh, or or the, the problematic part of how far, when we go too far on one side, that helps us realize that actually we need a more holistic balancing perspective. <laughs> I'm thinking, okay. So, you know, it, so let me say one more thing, actually. Sure. I want to say one more thing. The other thing that you brought up and I want to respond to in this singing group question, because I think it's really important. So is, is what happens. So some of the examples that we've been talking about so far, work life or my own career choices or are, are what happens when there are competing tensions and demands that I experience in my life or that we experience collectively as a group. But what happens, and this happens all the time, when the competing demands are two different groups, each of which is doubling down on its own perspective, and mm-hmm. we are in conflict with one another, right? In the singing group, what happens when one group says one thing and the other group says another thing? This happens in organizations. What happens when you've got the R&D innovative folks pitted against the finance folks, where the finance folks are worried about the short-term implications of their of their um, investments, and the innovation folks are worried about the long-term possibilities of the organization, and then you get into this conflict. And... Um, you know, one of the patterns that we talk about about problematic either or thinking is when we get into these polarized conflicts, we see it in our personal lives, we see it in our organization, we certainly see it in our in our political lives right now, where two sides, opposite sides, take different perspectives, double down on their perspectives, reinforce their perspectives, and start, you know, just living in that defensive mode. And we call that kind of polarization, we use the metaphor of trench warfare, because mm. you can just imagine people like digging deeper and deeper into their own trenches where they're with other people that are similar to them with this confirmation bias where people tell us, yes, yes, yes. And then shooting out at the other side without really seeing the other side. And 
you know, metaphorically, all you end up with, and actually in real life, all you end up with are these casualties along the way. And um, that is a form of either or thinking for sure is those kinds of enduring conflicts. And we see that all over the place. And one of the pieces of both anding is to recognize that oftentimes these different groups, uh, number one, are trying to accomplish the same thing in the long term. Mm -hmm. And number two, more importantly, and might bring different perspectives, different approaches, different values to that conflict. But number two, they're not listening to one another. And there's value in just stopping to listen to one another and hear what the other side says to at least pause, consider, respect, connect, build trust, and hopefully over time build some possibility that you can accommodate these different perspectives because that is what will lead to a better, more creative, more sustainable solution. And that's true whether it's in our personal lives with our partners and friends or whether that's in our political lives. Yes, mic drop. I love it. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you brought up the idea of listening to one another. I mean, to me, I I teach communication, for example, I teach communication in groups. And a lot of what we talk about is listening to the other side, listening to the other people in the group, because so much of how we communicate is informed by knowing that, having listened to that. And yet the thing that I keep coming up to when you're talking about this, Wendy, is it's It's asking people to think in consensus, to work in consensus, where we are looking at everybody as having uh, the right to have a say. And and when we're looking at these conflicts, we're looking at something that that is outside of what most people's comfort zones are. So when you're in that space, like I'll I'll, I'll give you an example from my own out of my comfort zone life. Uh, I manage stress pretty well. Okay. But sometimes I get so stressed out that, and it's because I haven't accepted what's going on, right? I'm still trying to change whatever's happening. La, 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 la. I get so stressed out to the point where suddenly I relax. And that relaxation happens when I accept what's going on as opposed to trying to beat my head against the wall. So when you're doing this in groups, when you're saying, okay, I'm going to, or when you're saying, I'm going to look at my life work balance sometimes you go all the way in one direction like you are spending so much time at work that your family's going hey remember us what you know so so you have to at some point accept what you're doing and how you're behaving and the way you've been thinking before you can make those changes right so let me ask you in in that paradigm where you're making these minute adjustments to uh, on the tightrope how do you keep it straight Mm -hmm. in your head what your what your ultimate goal is which is this more consensus way of doing things and and including family life and work life together but also being able to focus on the stuff that you're doing while you're doing it yeah um uh Ron Heifetz and Marty Alinsky talk about that leaders need to this last point you just said, leaders need to be on the dance floor dancing Mm. and simultaneously on the balcony exploring, you know, looking across the whole situation. That's really hard to do. And that is certainly a leadership challenge, which is to be able to be in the moment and outside of the moment 
at the same time. There's a paradox there. And, um, you know, I, I would um, maybe peel back from the word consensus. Uh, I think what what I think what you're trying to do is enable people to live in competing tension in a productive way. And that doesn't mean, you know, sometimes we talk about uh, compromise. Well, compromise is about giving up what you really believe in. This is not about compromising and giving up. It's about living in tension productively. And one of the ways that we see doing that is, in fact, what you were saying, which is knowing what that spot is at the end of the tightrope, knowing the long-term goal, knowing what you're trying to accomplish overall. And one of the people that we had the opportunity to speak with and to interview and, and um, talk with was Paul Pullman. Paul Pullman was the fantastic CEO of Unilever, the mm -hmm. um, package good company between 2008 and 2018, and brilliantly introduced the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, in which he made a very strong commitment. The company was in a death spiral, and he moved them to being one of the top companies through, not in at the same time as, but through a doubling financial profits through their commitment to social and environmental goals and very powerful ones. And his point was, you have to start with a higher purpose, mm -hmm. the why, the long-term perspective, because when we get back into those, those conflicts and we will, and we should, we have to keep reminding in the short term, we have to keep reminding ourselves of that higher purpose that we're all striving for. And that the reason we're here in tension with one another is in service of that longer term purpose, that longer term, that higher purpose that we're going for. And um, when we work with companies working in the tensions, again, we don't want to pretend that these tensions are just easy to work through or that they're not going to be, you know, they're not going to cause challenge or they're not going to cause angst. They will. And the way to work through those tensions is knowing why we're doing it and what enables us to accommodate both of them together. You know, if we were to go back to our image of the yin yang, we think of the higher purpose as the circle around the yin yang that bounds these things together. It's what it's the more holistic picture that we're trying to accommodate or we're trying to accomplish by accommodating, by engaging competing tensions and letting them help us do things that are better. So start with the higher purpose. I, there's there's a vision and a mission statement in so many companies and organizations. Moving now, you know, we're, sorry, I'm about to cough. <coughs> Excuse me. We're moving now in, in what can we can say, you know, the last vestiges or maybe even post-COVID. Me saying that right after I've gotten over COVID is <laughs> is uh, amusing. But uh, but yeah, so we're we're changing the way we're doing things. We're looking at how we're doing things and whether or not they're going to work moving into this new future and sustainability, conservation, looking at the environment, looking at climate change. There's so many issues. Can you can you narrow them down? You said, you know, go with your why. We can talk about Simon Sinek's book and all of that. But can you if there are so many competing forces on you, how do you figure out what that mission is going to be? Yeah. Um, you know, I think one question is, can you um, bear not to? So uh, <laughs> fair enough. I think, yeah, but I think you're right. It, we do. It does feel like we're living in quite the moment right now where there's tremendous challenges that we need to face out there. And 
Um, and so one question to ask is, uh, does it have to be the perfect why or does it could be a good enough why that helps support your organization to go forward in a really productive way? Um, you know, again, Paul Pullman's point was that he spent the first several months figuring out what is it that we are as an organization and where can we head as an organization collectively? And importantly, and to your point, this was not a vision. This idea, his, his vision was making everyday living, you know, everyday living sustainable, making sustainable living everyday living. And this was not something that uh, was just sort of on the walls of the organization, on these cards that we employees put in their pockets. When you walk around Unilever, people talk about this all the time. And in fact, what he did with, you know, his hundred and whatever thousand employees this large organization was that he had every single one of them uh, write up three goals that they had as for their organization and one personal goal in service of this mission and read a whole lot of them and responded to a whole lot of them and let people know that this was really critical to how we drive this vision down into everything that everybody does. So it wasn't something that was just abstract and effusive and sort of out there, but the reality of the work that we do is quite different. It was, this is what's going to drive and define our work. And this was what's going to drive and define our work when the tensions between our sustainability goals, our social mission goals, our environmental goals, and our financial goals come in conflict. And by the way, he was so sure that those tensions were there. And he was so sure that that in order to move forward in the context of those tensions, you have to raise them and you have to know them and then you have to work through them. You can't just sweep them under the rug. That he said, look, if, if my senior leaders are not raising those tensions, I'm gonna ask for them. I'm gonna invite them to put them on the table and we are going to work through our communication where we can talk to each other about them so that we can make sure that they don't just, as I said, get swept under the rug, but that they can serve us to get to better places collectively and make more creative strategic decisions. It's like your singing group. Let's not pretend that we just have one point of view here. Let's understand, let's unpack the different points of view. We talk about this as separating and connecting to enable paradox. Separating is let's identify the different points of view. Let's listen to and unpack the different points of view and what's really important about both and then from that place where we understand each other, where we listen to each other, where we understand what's at stake for each other, let's come to a place of a better, more creative decision. That is fabulous. And especially since inherent to that, what I just heard you say is that you, in addition to hearing it all, you respect the other people's points of view as you develop these. And I think that is crucial in order to to be able to get to this place of both and thinking because you might have people who are didactically opposed to one another i would love it wendy hey, i just want to pause you there for a minute and just uh -huh. raise up what you just said because it's so important it's not that we need each other to agree with us right and think about it as ourselves. we don't need other people to necessarily agree with us we do need them to listen and understand us and the more that we listen to each other the more that we respect each other, the more that we can then work together more productively going forward. Mic drop. There you go. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That it is it is that notion to me every time I work with a group that I may not agree with what you say, but I definitely 
want to hear it and take it in and and see what I think before I make any sort of response. And there's a difference to me between reaction and response. Uh, to me, it's how many breaths you take between what happens and what you do about it. But but that notion of actually being thoughtful in how you respond to someone's viewpoint that is very different from yours, I think enables this this very idea of both and thinking in groups. So I'm thrilled that you're talking about it so much, Wendy, and I appreciate it very much. I think you're doing incredible work. I would love it if you don't mind. Uh, talk a little bit about the book. What prompted you to write it? And and where, if somebody's trying to get it, where where could somebody go to get the book and learn these incredible concepts? Well, thank you. We, you know, what prompted us to write it, we, this, this book looks at the idea of moving from either or into both and, and then how do we engage with this both and had a, a deep dive on all of these concepts of, okay, so if we accept that there's value in both and how do we do it? And partially what inspired us to write it is that Marianne Lewis and I have been working together for the last 20, 25 years on these ideas. Wow. When we first started studying them, I think I had mentioned a lot of people said to us, well, you know, really, you just have to make better trade-offs. You have to do a deeper dive on the data, make a better decision. There's better and worse decisions. And over the last 20, 25 years, we have seen increasingly people use this language of both and, yes, and, win-win, uh, living in paradox. We see consultants now increasingly talk about the paradoxes of leadership and the paradoxes that leaders have to navigate and living in the both and. And we see companies talking about both and as their strategy. And uh, so we wrote the book partially to help people reframe the either or into the both and, and then partially to say, okay, once you do, what are the tools to do so? So now that you're using the label of both and, what are the tools to do so? And we've had this incredible community of colleagues that have been doing research on this, and we've pulled together that research to bring it into the concepts of this book. And so, so that's, that's um, and again, I, I would just say partially what motivated us is that uh, we see lots of challenges in the world, and it is so rewarding when we see how this approach both ending helps people at the individual level navigate their struggles more creatively and in particularly at in particular at the uh, global level gives us tools to more effectively deal with the crises and challenges and grand challenges that we experience. And so we find that rewarding. People can find the book most easily on our website www.bothandthinking.net. Uh, that's probably the easiest place to find the book. Um, and they can also follow both of us. That's terrific. And how how would they do that? What would be the best place to follow you? Um, so I, uh, I, Marianne and I are both active on Twitter and on LinkedIn and uh, on Facebook, and we can share all of those ways to follow both of us. Marianne is the Dean at the Lindner School of Business in University of Cincinnati, and she is there. We can put that website up. And I am a professor and, as you said, faculty director of our Women's Leadership Initiative at the Lerner School of Business and Economics at University of Delaware. And we can add that and all of those links uh, can also be found at bothandthinking.net. So 
and 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 links to where people could buy the book, uh, whether Amazon or an independent bookstore and IndieBound are all there as well. Oh, that's fantastic, Wendy. And you know, I just realized we didn't even talk about that. I hope you'll come back, actually, and and talk about women, specifically women's leadership, and how it relates to both and thinking and leading groups and organizations. If you're willing, I would love to have you back on the show to delve into that topic a little bit more, too. I would love that. It's something that we think a lot about the paradoxes of diversity, the paradoxes of how multiple voices are so valuable to creativity and yet can be, again, so double-edged because they can also create friction. So how do we get beyond that to value multiple voices and to value uh, particularly multiple voices around race and gender? So I'd love it. I love that. Awesome. That would be great. Yeah. And it's interesting to me, this notion of making something frictionless, right? Removing the friction means that you are easing flow. And we don't often think about the two of them together. But if you make something frictionless, you're increasing the ability of flow and creativity and ingenuity. And sometimes there are constraints, but that is okay, provided as you as you're talking about that you're looking at it from the perspective of, Yes, and which, by the way, I love that you used yes, and because that's a performer thing, you know, it's improv. Uh, and and that made me very I, I giggled because my husband is a circus clown. So <laughs> so uh, he's done a lot of yes, anding in his life. Uh, Wendy, I am super, super grateful that you took the time to be here on the show. This has been such uh, an eye opening and a delightful conversation. And I could keep you here for the next six hours, but I know you have a life to get back to. We are going to come back and do a little bonus episode. So that's awesome. But first, I have one question as my last question that I ask everyone who comes on the show. And it's a silly question, but I find that it yields some profound answers. And the question is this If you had an airplane, environmentally friendly, of course, that could skywrite anything for the whole world to see, what would you say? Well, you know, I have a bit of a hammer and my hammer is live in the both and embrace the both and. So that is definitely the hammer in which I am engaging. Um, so I'll, I'll go with that for the moment. Live and embrace the both and. I love it. That's great. Yeah. And it's it's it is it is asking something of us as individuals and as members of this global village that I think is actually just really good for us too. It inherent to, to what you're talking about, to your research, to the book, is looking at the other side not as an enemy, but as a potential collaborator, someone you can grow with and do incredible things with and create with and be ingenious with. So I I highly respect what you're saying in case you haven't noticed. I'm like your biggest cheerleader. So I'm I'm really grateful that you took the time and thank you so much. I'm looking forward to having you back on the show. I look forward to it. This has been I, I can't believe that an hour has gone by so quickly. So thank you. <laughs> It was my pleasure. All righty. If you've enjoyed today's episode, you know what to do. Rate and review the podcast. Get in touch with Wendy. See the work that she and her cohorts are doing in this incredible, wonderful way of looking at the world, both and thinking. Until next time, again, this is Isolde Trachtenberg for the Innovative Mindset Podcast, reminding you to always be bold, be creative, and most of all, be kind. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you being here. Please subscribe to the podcast if you're new, and it would mean the world to me if you told a friend about it. Today's episode was produced by Isolde Trachtenberg and is copyright 2023. As always, please remember this is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Past performance does not guarantee future results, although we can always hope. Until next time, keep living what you believe in. Thank you.